0: The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Brian Check is the founding president of the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy. He served as the first conservation biologist in the history of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service from 1999 to 2017 and concurrently as a visiting professor of natural resource economics in Virginia Tech's National Capital Region. He's the author of several books, including Supply Shock, Shoveling Fuel for a Runaway Train, and the Endangered Species Act, History, Conservation Biology, and Public Policy, as well as over 50 academic journals. Brian's primary contributions to ecological economics pertain to the trophic origins of money, the process of technological progress, and the political steady state revolution. How does a nice conservation biologist in a, in a group dedicated to economic issues? I, I need to know that story.
1: Uh, going way back, I was a wildlife biologist and then I kind of expanded my horizons to conservation biology one of the ways I did that was to do a policy analysis of the Endangered Species Act for my Ph.D. dissertation at the University of Arizona, and that was in the late 90s. And as part of that, I was looking at the causes of species endangerment in the United States. And so I developed a database for all of the, uh, the federally listed species, over 877 of them at the time. And at the end of the day... It just struck me that this, list of cause, that this list of causes of endangerment, it was nothing but a who's who of the American economy. So, and as part of this policy design uh, model that I was using, well, what you had to do was say, okay, these are this is the context within which the policy has to work. And, uh, and, and in this case, the Endangered Species Act had to work within a context of a rapidly growing economy that every politician out there was uh, cheering on, or not just cheering on, but uh, adding policy layers so that it would grow even more and even faster. So that's how I got into it, Jack. I just didn't feel like uh, biodiversity conservation was anything except an exercise in futility unless we got at the
0: macro economy. But I think that we we tend in, in the movement to stay away from that stuff because it's just, one, depressing, two, complex, uh, and three, just very, very daunting. First of
1: all, that really resonates with me that, you know, your the podcast has only covered it for a few minutes out of that many episodes. It's the exact same thing that I found when I got into it back in the 90s. Um, I started, when I noticed that the causes of endangerment were like a who's who of the American economy, one of the next things I did is I went to the, back then, you know, you actually had to go to the library and use the uh, the catalog system, and I searched uh, all these databases. They were electronic, but not online. And they were databases uh, that had all the natural resource journals, and and there was zero about economic growth in the entire history of the journals published by the Wildlife Society, for example. Uh, that included mm-hmm. the Wildlife Society Bulletin, that was the trade journal, and then the Journal of Wildlife Management, you know, the heavy duty peer reviewed journal. Zero! There was, and there, I think there was only one article that had the word economics anywhere in the title at all. And it was purely a microeconomic study, you know, like the price of some uh, hunting permit somewhere or something like that. So uh, it's not surprising. And you're right, you know, who? why do we want to be dealing with that? That's not why we went into this line of work. We want to be out there in the mountains and, you know, seeing the beautiful sights. And, uh, and in a lot of cases, we worked hard to be able to do that for a living. But, you know, when push comes to shove, if we really love those wide open spaces and that wildlife and then the broader biodiversity globally, we have just got to get into economics and, and, and not microeconomics, but no, straight to the, the uh, macroeconomics of the nation, at any political level, there are macroeconomies. You know, it's uh, macroeconomics isn't at all about the geographic scale. It's about aggregating economic activity, and so you have a you can have a local macroeconomy, a state macroeconomy, the national and global macroeconomies, and it's the that goal, the macroeconomic goal of growth that we have to change if we want to have any hope for conserving biodiversity. Otherwise, those causes of endangerment will continue to proliferate ad nauseum until we have hardly anything left.
0: We've made what we've made. We've done what we've done in history to this point with extractive industry and basically never accounting for Uh, a whole forest of trees that we've taken down that like it's just free and like it just comes from nowhere. And, you know, I own the land, I bought the land. That's how we account for it. We got the, how much the land was and then here's all the profit I made from the trees. We never really account for the nature part of, of, of all of that. Why can't we flip the economy completely over on its head and go in the reverse direction and make all the things that are profitable, Now unprofitable and all the things that we did to get here, which took from the planet and you know, lowered our biodiversity and poured carbon into the air, reverse it all and why can't it just work in reverse where everything that we do is greedily done for the welfare of the planet?
1: Well, that's uh there's a long story I think to uh in response to that. You could do a lot of that, a lot of what you're talking about, but don't expect that to concur with GDP growth. You know, you can definitely have a healthier economy. We could, as you say, flip a number of things over on their head uh and have more happiness and, uh you know, more service to society. But that's not going to concur. That's not going to be conducive to GDP growth. And so that's... The aspect of macroeconomic policy that we have to get in there and change this constant obsession with growing GDP, because to grow GDP, you have to have more and more agricultural and extractive surplus at the base of the economy in order to free the hands for the division of labor into all the other stuff, including some of the good stuff you're talking about, frankly. You can't do those good things unless you have something to eat and some shelter around you. The basic structure of the human economy is very much like the economy of nature with its trophic levels. You know, and that's, uh, you mentioned earlier that this topic is daunting for a lot of us conservation biologists to get into. And I would like to encourage the, the biologists and ecologists out there by saying that, you know, as an ecologist, you're the economist of nature. You know more about the relationship between the human economy and the non-human economy than all of those so-called economists out there whose vision is pretty much limited to Homo sapiens. If you're an ecologist, you understand that in the economy of nature, we have trophic levels, starting with the producers at the base. And it's only when you get enough surplus of that plant production through the process of photosynthesis that you're going to have the consumers, the primary consumers and then the secondary consumers, the omnivores and predators. And it's the same with the human economy. Uh, I'm afraid that we do have to have, if we want GDP growth, an expanding trophic base in order to grow the entire integrated holistic economy. So in other words, Jack, the only real solution to this, I do believe, I do conclude, not believe, I I say I conclude from the decades of studies of this now. We have to abandon that goal of economic growth and adopt instead the goal of a steady state economy and perhaps even some degrowth prior to uh you know the right size the steady state economy
0: well that sounds like trouble for billionaires to me like and those guys are pretty influential on this planet how do you wake up in the morning with hope in the business that you're in <laughs> because there are so many things working against you it seems to me
1: well there are as you say billionaires um, that are working against us there you might say generally the system you know wall street and Koch brothers dark money and political economy in general tends to be very pro-growth but we we steady staters have two really big allies on our side and those are sound science and common sense you know the common sense part, I'm afraid it's it's become very latent at this point because the public has been flooded for decades now with this pro-growth win-win rhetoric that there is no conflict between growing the economy and protecting the environment. That's hogwash. But we've all heard it so much uh with not enough pushback, we need more conservation biologists pushing back. Uh, and that's going to reawaken the common sense among people that, well, you know, come to think of it, there is no way you can have perpetually growing population times per capita consumption. It's just impossible. And so we do have that common sense on our side. And then when that changes the whole discussion, once there is widespread agreement that, yeah, there are limits to growth because then the the discussion turns to oh well then when do we decide uh what the right size of that economy is don't we want to avoid pushing it all the way to the to the max and it's a very different discussion once the limits to growth
0: are acknowledged and before 2020 i would be like you know what that's all we need but after this year <laughs> and watching people just completely ignore all kinds of common sense stuff, you know, and just say, ah, whatever. I'm tempted to say cynically uh, that we all know there are limits to growth. I think everybody, everybody pretty much understands that. It's not that it's a choice that's been made despite the fact of that realization. We're only going to live so long. I'm going to get mine, you know, greed, um, just not dealing with the issue head in the sand stuff which I'm pretty guilty of in this in this regard uh, on this topic <clears throat> the daunting part again i just i go hide in some wilderness uh, it doesn't seem like we know and we're just making a conscious choice uh anyway to to go forth cuz it's it's such common sense how could anybody not know
1: back in the early 90s i worked for the San Carlos Apache tribe uh, I was there for five years and i I developed a wildlife management program for them and then I was the the director of their game and fish department and I'll never forget uh one day I was out in the field with one of the uh tribal game and fish commissioners and I said something like uh, john that's just that's just common sense and and he said and i didn't actually like the tone of his voice when he said it necessarily but He said, your common sense is not my common sense. (laughs) So, you know, yes, what you just said about yourself, and I think by extrapolation, conservation biologists in general, and ecologists for sure in general, yeah, it's common sense to us. But you'd be shocked at the rest, at many uh, large cohorts out there in the rest of society for whom evidently and clearly it is not common sense. I mean, that's why you will have to debate, literally, like we have had to a number of times, uh, literally debate Nobel Prize winning economists who will tell you with nothing but certainty in their brain that there is no limit GDP growth because we can continually apply more and more brain power as long as our population continues to grow. We have more and more brain power to solve bigger and bigger problems like we always have in the past. They have no no conception of carrying capacity. Uh, Many have never lived on a farm. Uh, They've never been part of any sort of Agricultural or extractive sector in, in any way at all. They, they uh, are totally urban, and they have learned from their textbook that uh, that economic growth is a function of uh, uh, it's a function of capital and labor, and land is completely left out of the equation in uh, you know the state of the art models of GDP growth. So, yeah, that's the answer in a nutshell. That, again, is just another reason why I really encourage ecologists and conservation biologists to get into ecological macroeconomics because you'd be surprised. You have a lot to bring to the table. And once you do, then I think our common sense uh, will prevail fairly, fairly readily
0: you're listening to the rewilding earth podcast did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars poets artists and organizers from around the world you can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant fresh insights on everything rewilding you'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends It seems like there ought to be a law that you're not allowed to be an economist until you have uh, addressed what you just talked about, about growth uh, and and the stupidity of of the idea of infinite growth. But, I mean, that messes up their whole world. If you include that, that screws up everything else they learned about things. I mean, GDP is their church.
1: Well, I think the the starting point for Understanding what a steady state economy is, is by reminding ourselves what economic growth is. So economic growth is simply increasing production and consumption of goods and services in the aggregate. And it's indicated by growing GDP and it entails a growing population and or per capita production and consumption. And so the steady state economy is basically all those things except stabilized instead of growing. So it's stabilized population and or uh, consumption and production and consumption per person. And all else equal, it's going to be indicated by a stabilized GDP. And uh, it, sometimes people ask, well, what would a steady state economy look like? And I tell them, well, to start with, uh, look out your window. Do you like what you see there? And and uh, if so, wouldn't you like that to continue? And if that's the case, well, that's your steady state economy. And if most of the rest of the people in your uh, democratically governed community like where they're living and like what they see out the window, well, then try to maintain that. That's a steady state economy. If you don't like that uh the noise of those the bulldozers there, you know, a quarter mile away and all that dust coming up from the new road that's being constructed and what that's going to do to congestion in the area and taxes and so on and so forth. Well, that's your growth economy. That's the starting point I think to consider the steady state
0: economy. So in a steady state economy, how what's life look like? For people, what, what happens to the ambition of people who have come up generation after generation who have made or have had family members, um, generational wealth built on that extraction growth economy stuff? Like, how do they even envision their place? Because they're the ones we have to worry about when we're trying to argue this case, right?
1: Well, it's everybody we got to worry about. But in their particular case, the conversation to have with them is your extractive industry, let's say your timber industry, uh, don't you want to continue that? And if you do, that, that's one of the easiest examples because, of course, you have to have sustainable yield. You can't liquidate that forest and, and remain in business. And they all know that. That's why I do think the people that... Do still have that common sense about limits to growth? Are especially farmers, uh, hunters, and fishermen, and fisher people, and loggers, ranchers, for sure. I think they tend to get it quite readily, especially when you start talking with them about it. They they typically don't have anybody to talk to about that. They're not. They're worried about more. Mm, regulatory politics and shorter-term uh financial pressures. But if you really start talking about long-term prospects for their own kids and their grandkids and the land that they love, uh, then their common sense, I think, is uh second to none about limits to growth.
0: I don't think we can safely... Uh, extract ourselves from this conversation without talking about population. When you think about the
1: steady state economy, once again, it's stabilized population times production and consumption per person. In the USA now, in North America, I think at large, there is a uh, stabilized population uh, from not including the immigration process the population growth rate now is such that the population is pretty much stabilized. Per couple, children is is right around two, two point one, which is replacement rate. Now, I I think what you're saying is we also have to at some point get to the immigration issue, and and I want to tell you what our position is on that at Cassie at the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy because. Uh, We find that it it resonates with people. We say that, yes, we do need to have tight borders, let's call them. We need to close down borders, but, and this is a very big but, but only when we, as the USA or we as Canada, whoever, you know, we're talking about, we as USA, let's say, announce to the world that we have decided to transition away from the goal of GDP growth and to the goal of a steady state economy. And then, when we have accomplished that, then we can turn some of our resources, of which we're very blessed yet in the USA, turn some of those resources to helping populations of people in parts of the world that have such problems that they want to get out of there and move to places like the USA. We need to help them uh, have a good home. Where They, they don't want to leave. In most cases, they, it's a, 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 an unfortunate necessity that they leave and we're going to have more and more of this in terms of climate refugees, for example. and. It, and uh, uh a lot of the responsibility for that is on us in the USA for having had such uh luxury consumption levels for so long but the way to get out of that that uh constant uh process of you know the race to the bottom in terms of environmental and economic deterioration the way to get out of that is to first of all replace the old 20th century goal of gdp growth with the goal that's appropriate for this century and that would be the goal of the steady state economy and then we can get really serious about population stabilization and helping the rest of the world along the same path
0: i was getting ready to say that you have like two or three uh layers of nope in there, you've got populate the the discussion around population, and then the more specific discussion around immigration and 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 I just call that just layers of nope. Those are conversations yeah. that just don't go anywhere. Like you 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 can tell who believes what in a room in the first three seconds that you start talking about those topics. Yeah. But you've given me a breakthrough. You've given me a way to talk about that by first bringing up. The steady state economy thing, because then it becomes obvious we're going to have to talk about these other issues. But on the conversely, people feel like they can be loose on all of these issues like immigration and population, because they in some way are arguing from the idea of unlimited growth themselves. And they live in a system that is completely worshiping at the altar of unlimited growth. And so it makes their arguments against, nope, we don't talk about population, and nope, we don't talk about immigration, because they worship at that altar, advertently or inadvertently. <laughs> Absolutely, and I'm glad that, that you thought
1: of that, because that's basically our our um, strategy, you might say, as well. We, we realize that if we go at... uh Limits to growth, let's call it the problem of limits to growth. If we go at that straight out of the gate from the population standpoint, we're not getting anywhere. But if we talk about it in terms of the economy, there are several reasons for that. One of them is that when you start with population growth, right away you're encountering some very entrenched religious issues. And that's serious stuff. Uh, Whereas if you start talking out of the gate about the economy, all of a sudden it's a very secular matter. And there are no taboo red flags that pop up. It's a totally allowable conversation. And people are talking all the time about the economy, the economy, the economy. So you're right. As long as we can uh, couch the uh, discussion about sustainability in terms, first and foremost, of the economy and of GDP, then we're going to get somewhere. And when we get to the policy arena, yep, population plops right out of the bag and immigration policy plops right out of the bag. So that, I believe, is the order we need
0: to go at it. People who call themselves religious are willing to do some really unreligious things when it comes to... Economic decisions. And it's really weird because sometimes they'll hold the Bible in one hand and <laughs> they'll be doing these really un-Jesus-like things with the other. Uh, but, but they're in the economy state. Like they're just thinking about numbers and, and, uh, profits and stuff like that. And somehow there's a dis- disconnect there. Obviously you can see it in today's politics, um, between their, uh, professed religion and their actions. Um, that's, that's a negative thing, but can it be turned around and be a positive too? Well, that's, that's right. And, you know, I, I'm not going to claim to
1: be any expert on this, but I have studied it a little bit. I was born and raised Catholic and there always was a sort of a conflict there between the concept of husbandry toward nature and taking care of it. And on the other hand, having dominion over it and so on. But I think the most refreshing thing that, that's happened certainly in Catholicism and, and I, maybe even in the entire religious world is this Pope Francis. I think maybe some significant portion of, of your listeners would be uh, familiar with the document that he wrote and published as a papal encyclical, I think it was three, maybe four years ago now, called the Laudato Si. It is a powerful document for biodiversity conservation, for climate stabilization, for environmental protection in general. And, you know, when I read it, I thought to myself, my God, this is is an an implicit prescription for a steady state economy. If we can get that thing circulating, you know, it's, it's there for the long haul. It's an encyclical, which is like a very, very durable sort of document. They don't come out every day. That would be along the lines, I think, of what you were just saying. You know, we kind of get the other side of the coin in action.
0: Well, everybody can go to steadystate.org and find out more, but what would you like people to do when they go there? What, and, and considering our audience, what, um, what do you want people to know when they get there? The first thing we want them to do is sign the position.
1: The, it'll say at the bottom of the screen, sign the position with this big blue box. And that is a position designed to invoke that common sense that ecologists have and get it circulating more broadly, the common sense that there is a fundamental conflict between economic growth and not only environmental protection, but but environmental protection and economic sustainability and national security and international stability. And when you sign that position, you're going to be joining the likes of E.O. Wilson and Jane Goodall and uh, Vandana Shiva and David Suzuki, you know, a lot of the top conservation people in the world, as well as, frankly, a lot of top progressive economists, including at least one Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, Abhijit Banerjee. Do that, please, sign the CASI position, and then also join CASI. We have the only organization in the world that is dedicated explicitly advancing the steady state economy that's our focus and it only costs 25 bucks it would be too ironic jack if we you know made you spend a fortune to join cassie so it's a modest 25 bucks and we send you a nice little book called uh best of
0: the daily news it's a primer well thank you for giving me the chance to talk about all the things you're never supposed to talk about in polite company all in one podcast <laughs> all in one 30 minutes it's just been phenomenal. I mean, you gave me that permission. I had to do it. This stuff is stuff you have to pay attention to. And you made me really interested in it today. I didn't have that high a hope that I was going to be this engaged because I knew what we were going to talk about. But actually, you have a great way of making this approachable. And I thank you for that. And I hope that other people get that out of this, too, because it is at the heart of everything that we do.
1: Well, thank you, Jack. It's been a real pleasure talking with you and Thanks again for the opportunity to be on your show.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org/pod. That's rewilding.org/p o d.